Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From The New York Times, I'm Caitlin Dickerson. This is The Daily. Today. The vote on the health care bill is off, for now. Why a small group of senators blocked the Republicans' biggest legislation since Trump's election. And after the shooting of Philando Castile, we see there was a four-year-old girl sitting in the back seat. What happens to the family members who witness police shootings? It's Wednesday, June 28th. Uh, I had hoped as you know, that we could have gotten to the floor this week, but we're not quite there. Uh, but I think we've got a really good chance of getting there. It'll just take us a, a little bit longer. Hello? Hi, Jennifer Steinhauer. Hey, hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? We meet again. Good. Good. Hi. Good. Hi. Okay. So, so big news. The Senate is pushing back its vote. What happened? So, I mean, the long and short of it is that they could not get the votes needed by Republicans. They could only afford to lose two Republican senators, and they have far more than that from both ends of the spectrum that simply were not willing to vote to even proceed, to even begin debate the bill. So rather than take a failed vote, Senator Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, decided to postpone the whole exercise until after the July 4th recess. Wow, far more. So so who are the Republican senators who have said they won't move forward? And where are they from? Well, the truth is there's a large universe of Republican senators who had problems with the bill. Some of them weren't even vocal about it, but we know that okay. uh, they were out there, whether you're talking about Rob Portman from Ohio, you had Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. This current draft doesn't get the job done. Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky. We're afraid that when we read the bill, that it actually looks like a reiteration or a keeping of Obamacare. Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, who was very clear. Today, I don't have enough information. I don't have enough data in terms of the impact to my state to be able to vote in the affirmative. You had Susan Collins from Maine. I have very serious concerns about the bill. Now, you talk about states like Alaska and Maine that have smaller populations and very rural places. And when you have a very rural state, that's important because health care is less accessible and thus it's more expensive. Also, if you want to focus on Maine, where Senator Susan Collins has been a fierce advocate for her state and a pretty vocal opponent of this bill, and in fact, is someone who was on the tip of the spear in terms of leading to its demise for now, um, you're talking about a state that has a lot of working-class voters who would have lost um, some of their health insurance subsidy. Um, you're talking about people, part-time workers, who are struggling. You're talking about a state like many states, and I would include Alaska, and I would include Ohio, and I would include West Virginia, that have a high rate of opioid incidents, mm-hmm. where the mental health provisions and the Affordable Care Act were helping people work through addiction problems, which, as you know, the opioid crisis is really just sweeping the country. And you're talking about a place where people have small businesses which have generally been opposed to the law, but I'm talking about little tiny businesses with two and three employees where you have entrepreneurs who were able to leave their jobs because they were no longer, you know, kind of 
tethered to the insurance of their large employers and able to start these little businesses because they were able to buy health insurance. So Maine kind of has it all. Oh, and I forgot one other huge component, of course, is that What's Maine that? has one of the oldest populations in the country. Right. And the people who really get hammered in this bill are older, poor, working-class Americans who do not yet qualify for the Medicare program. They were looking at getting pretty hammered there. So if you look at those components, that's why Susan Collins was a pretty strong voice on this. Lee Umphrey is the CEO of the Harrington Family Health Center in Harrington, Maine. The Harrington Health Center is in the heart of Down East Maine. Geographically, it's beautiful, the ocean, the blueberry barrens, but it's uh, very isolated and it's very rural and uh, there's no public transportation. There's hardly any employment opportunities, so people rely on seasonal work. So a community health center really is an essential part of their life. During the ACA, we enrolled 1,500 people into affordable health care plans, and I met everybody who signed up for a plan, and um, most of them never had health care coverage before. Wow. Sounds like a pretty large number. How does that compare to to the entire city? I mean, is that almost everybody? Well, it it is, and it's for our service area is 17 communities, but our town of Harrington is only 1,000 people. Oh, my goodness. So we reached out to the surrounding communities, and it was hard because it was such political opposition to the ACA and Obamacare, and our area is very politically conservative. And so it was a real challenge mm-hmm. trying to convince people that mm-hmm. affordable health care made sense. Hmm. But once people started enrolling, I think word of mouth really spread. You know, it, it created a mindset for people that, you know, health care could be affordable, and it gave them peace of mind, too, that they could get care. And again, a lot of these people, lobstermen, fishermen, work in the woods, blueberry barrens, had never had health insurance before. Huh. Tell me, I'm curious a little bit more about the patients you serve. Yeah. What are the most prominent health issues that they're dealing with? Yeah. In our area, in Down East Maine, unfortunately, we are the leaders in every health category there is. We mm. have the highest obesity rate, highest diabetes rate, highest early death rate highest cancer rate. Wow. People in our area, they've never had health insurance, so they never took care of themselves. And so they have chronic conditions, multiple chronic conditions. You know, one of the ways we overcame the politics of all of this was talking to them about all the patient protections within the ACA and and why it was good for them to come in and didn't matter if they had a pre-existing condition or had multiple uh, health issues. Yeah. And I think what it did is, is, is gave them hope that they can become healthier and have an affordable coverage plan and then come in and have us provide the services they need. And it's not just primary care, but behavioral health. And we've had uh, the opioid epidemic here, which is a tremendous issue, not only here in rural Maine, but across the country. And where everyone's concerned that the new bill being projected is just going to harm that effort to try to curb uh, people's addiction problems. Mm Mm-hmm. So in your view, Lee, I mean, you're seeing up close what the community looks like and, and the whole spectrum, really. So do you think this fight over health care happening in Congress should be about fixing the Affordable Care Act, which it sounds like did a lot of good for people in your city? Or do you think it's about starting from scratch, creating something new that can be even better? I see it as evaluating what worked and how do we make it better. 
I see these people every day with these multiple chronic conditions, and they're so relieved, peace of mind, that they can get care and hopefully get better. And so I think the uncertainty now is, is bothering a lot of people. Having insurance created a mindset and losing it is creating a, a real negative impact. Yeah. They don't want to lose their existing coverage, and we're reassuring them that regardless of what happens, that they can still come in and we're going to provide the right kind of care. But that uncertainty is, is, is kind of fueling more uncertainty. Let's zoom out a little bit from Maine, Jennifer. As you said, it, this is sort of a singular state, but what can the rest of the country take away from how Maine would be impacted by this health care bill or any other health care bill? I mean, what's the broader lesson from that state? Well, not every state has all of the components of Maine, obviously, mm-hmm. but every state has something that Maine has. A lot of old people, a lot of poor people, a lot of people who were previously uninsured who now have insurance under the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. So every state have either enjoyed some benefit from the Affordable Care Act or have needs that are addressed with the expansion of access to health care. Um, it's hard to, to take that back from people, and there are some Republicans not eager to do that in a rapid or large-scale manner. Mm-hmm. And that has been the great difficulty for Republicans to grapple with. Okay, Jennifer, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. On Tuesday evening, President Trump invited all 52 Republican senators to the White House. This will be great if we get it done. And if we don't get it done, it's just going to be something that we're not going to like. And that's okay. And I understand that very well. The president was photographed, flanked by the senators who have been most vocal about their apprehensions over the bill, including Senator Susan Collins of Maine. This president is the first president in our history who has had neither political nor military experience. And thus, it has been a challenge to him to learn how to interact with Congress and how to push his agenda forward. We'll be right back. As a global leader in experiential education, Drexel University encourages students to both gain knowledge and find new ways to turn that knowledge into action. Drexel is proud to be one of 39 private institutions in the nation to achieve recognition by the Carnegie Classification of Institutions of Higher Education as an R1 research institution, affirming this Philadelphia University's commitment to discovery and innovation. Experience what education can be at drexel.edu. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that (laughs) should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel 
feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. On July 6, 2016, Philando Castile was shot by a police officer inside his car. The police led his girlfriend, who was in handcuffs, and her four-year-old daughter into the back of a police car. Last week, the video of that shooting was released for the first time. Yumiche Alcindor, you covered that shooting for The Times. Walk us through that video. The video shows Diamond Reynolds and her daughter moments after Philando Castillo was shot. I can't believe they just did this. I'm fucking ah! It's okay, I'm right here with you. Um, what you see is a young girl really comforting her mother, telling her not to scream, not to cry, and telling her that I'm scared that you're going to get quote unquote shooted. Eventually, her mom kind of regains herself after screaming and screaming and screaming and says, it's okay, I got this. It's okay, I got it, okay? okay. So you then see them kind of transition into coming to terms with what just happened. I can't believe they just did that. And at that point, the little girl is, was she four years old? The little girl, I think, was four years old. So that video was made public after it was shown to jurors in a courtroom last week in the case against the police officer who shot Philando Castile. Can you remind us about the case? So Philando Castile was a young man who was driving with his girlfriend and her young daughter in the back seat. Um, he was stopped for what the police are now saying was because he fit the description of some suspect that has yet to fully be described. Um, but the officer says that it's because he has a broken brake light and has something wrong with his car. Yes, sir. Good. How are you? Good. Uh, reason I put you over, you, your brake lights are out. So you only have one activated, active brake light, and that's going to be our passenger side one. was armed at the time and told the officer that he had a gun in the car. And says several times, I'm not going for the gun. The officer, you see, gets startled and shoots Philando. So essentially, this is a man who was driving with his girlfriend and her daughter in the car with a gun and was shot by police and the officer was acquitted of all charges, and the officer, as in a lot of other cases, said that he feared for his life and that he smelled a marijuana on Philando, and that's why he shot. We should say Philando Castile's weapon, the gun that he had, he had that legally. He was licensed to carry and also told the officer very clearly that he had the gun and that he was not going for it. Um, but the officer said that he thought that because he smelled like marijuana and he was someone who could be reckless and smoke around a child, um, that he somehow feared for his life. Yamish, you've covered these shootings for years, and in a lot of them, you've stayed with the families. You've covered them for months, sometimes even for years. So what happens to the children? What happens to kids like this little four-year-old girl? In Diamond Reynolds' daughter's case, she's watched a man that was her mom's boyfriend that she loved, that she was 
friends with um, be murdered in front of her eyes and then had to console her mother and step into that role as a four-year-old. In a lot of these other cases, these kids are very much struggle with, with how to go on. So Tamir Rice was a young man who was shot in Cleveland. His sister lost like 50 pounds and could hardly go to school because he was so traumatized. Oscar Grant is another young man who was shot in California unarmed in the back by an officer who was convicted but then given a really light sentence. And his daughter ducks when he, when she sees the police because she's terrified of them. Um, to this day. To this day. So you have kids who are just completely terrified of the police. Then there are kids who, who really are going through this, the struggle of just missing the person. So in Eric Garner's case, his grandkids and his children had to watch him die over and over and over again because at the same time, while we have these videos that are shining a light on a lot of these cases, these families have to watch these videos over and over again. So you have children watching their grandparents die over and over again. And that in itself is also a, a sort of second victimization for a whole other generation. My son, he is 15 years old. He had to watch this as this was put all over the outlet. Each time you write a story like this, you spend time with, of course, the families and the descendants, but you also talk to people who have a totally different view of police-involved shootings. Do you have a sense of how people who view this issue very differently take in that information, how they see it, what they think of it? For the most part, I mean, they see it almost as a lot of the juries see it. They see it from a very legal standpoint, that even if it's sad or it's tragic that these shootings have happened, and I think I've talked to many police officials and union officials who say, yeah, that's a real tragedy, but legally, what is happening here? Legally, you have an officer who felt that he was in danger in some way, and as a result, had to take the action that his training told him he had to take. So I think that a lot of times, I don't think that they see the actual videos that much differently. I think it's that they see the legal standards for what they are, and as a result, they don't see an officer just as another citizen that's that's doing something that maybe is questionable. They see an officer of the law who's been entrusted to be able to make possibly fatal mistakes without having them be criminal. So a lot of union officials often say, like, an officer can make a mistake, but should he go to jail for that mistake? It's very difficult for police officers to know what they're dealing with, especially in split-second situations. These are split-second decisions that need to be made to prevent violence to themselves, to others, uh, and uh, possibly even the suspects. What is it like for the families that you know to watch the acquittals that come afterward? There were just two more last week. Not guilty. That is the verdict in the trial of St. Anthony Police Officer Geronimo Yanez. Jurors found Yanez was reasonable in his decision to shoot and kill Philando Castile during a traffic stop last July. It's super hard. I should say I was in the room with Michael Brown's mom when she got the news that the officer that killed her child wasn't going to be indicted. The the lawyer took the call and she as soon as she heard about it, she was screaming, walking through the hotel room, really pacing, screaming at the top of her lungs. And then she ran out and ran into the protest. So that was something where I watched and it stuck with me and it still sticks with me because I think one that she was courteous enough to allow me into that space that was so that was so private. And two, that they feel as though their children have been murdered and there's no recourse and the country does not in some ways care anymore. Amy Shalcinder, thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me.
On Monday, Philando Castile's mother reached a $3 million settlement with the city of St. Anthony, Minnesota. The announcement came 10 days after Officer Geronimo Yanez was acquitted of second-degree manslaughter and all other charges related to Castile's death. And on Tuesday, three police officers in Chicago were charged with conspiracy and obstruction of justice in connection with the investigation that followed the death of Laquan McDonald, a black teenager fatally shot by police in 2014. Here's what else you need to know today. The Trump administration is accusing Syria of preparing for another chemical weapons attack. The Defense Department said it detected the preparations at the same airbase where Bashar al-Assad's regime launched a nerve gas attack in April that killed dozens of civilians. On Tuesday, Syria's government denied having chemical weapons, while the Trump administration threatened, quote, a heavy price for an attack. And... In the latest international cyber assault, hackers have infiltrated the computer systems of corporations and government agencies across Europe and the United States, including transportation, communications, and postal services. It's the second time in two months that hackers have hijacked data and held it for ransom using tools created by the NSA that were designed to prevent such cyber attacks. That's it for The Daily. I'm Caitlin Dickerson. Michael Barbaro is back tomorrow. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from BlackRock. Hi, I'm Oscar Polito, host of The Bid, a podcast from BlackRock where we break down what's happening in the world of investing. On our latest episode, Gen AI Through a COO Lens, I sit down with BlackRock COO Rob Goldstein and lead technologist Lance Bronstein to discuss how business leaders are considering Gen AI to amplify human capabilities, upskill the workforce, and recalibrate approaches to client interactions. Listen to the episode on The Bit and subscribe for market insights from BlackRock's thought leaders.